called The Power of Oneness in Christ. The Power of Oneness in Christ. Um, I almost have to give a little uh, disclaimer here because at first I thought, well, I don't like that title, The Power of Oneness, um, because it, it, it connotates um, kind of an, a uh, unbiblical doctrine that's floating around the church today. It's, well, it's been floating around the church for years called the Oneness Movement or the Oneness Pentecostal Movement or the Jesus Only Movement. Um, it's unbiblical in its theology. And that's why I put the little tagline there, the power of oneness through Christ. Okay, I, I want us to understand we're not talking about that. The, if you're not familiar with the Jesus-only uh, movement, uh, it's known as the oneness Pentecostalism or oneness theology. And it teaches that there is only one God, which is fine, but it also denies the triunity of God. It denies the Trinity. In other words, oneness theology does not recognize the distinct personages of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, it has a lot of different forms out there, the oneness movement. Some see Jesus Christ as the only one God who sometimes manifests himself as the Father, and then other times he manifests himself as the Spirit. But there's only one uh, person, and that's Jesus um, it's basically, it teaches that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Spirit, and Jesus is Jesus, which is kind of a crazy uh, doctrine. It's, it came to be known as, as modalism, basically because they say that Jesus existed in different modes at different times. But if you know anything about the Bible, and if if you're new to Christianity, we believe here that there is one God, but that God expresses himself through the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And passages like Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where two or all three persons of the Godhead are present, um, contradict that oneness movement. So I just wanted to put that out there. So don't think we're teaching oneness theology by that. But we are one in Christ. Amen? The body of Christ is called to unity. We're called to... Um, uh, be one body, not have divisions and schisms. And last week we talked about how to build up that body. And just in review quickly, uh, last week we said be, we have to be careful how we build. We have to be aware of what's going on as we build something. Uh, to build something properly, the first point was is you need to know what you're trying to build. And we don't have to come up with this. God has already given us the answer in his word. The New Testament is uh, laden down with instructions on how to do church and do it biblically. We don't need to come up with an extra book or write a manual on it. It's already given to us. Uh, secondly, we said not only do you have to know what to build, but you have to have a right foundation. And that's common sense in any building project. You have to have a right foundation. And we know that our foundation is not based upon Peter as the Catholic Church uh, claims that he was the first pope, and we looked at that last week. But um, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches, that the church is found on Christ and Christ alone. He is the solid rock, the foundation. And then also you need good supplies. And lastly, you need to construct your building bit by bit. It doesn't happen overnight. Okay, the building up of the church has been going on for thousands of years, and it will continue to go on. 
Uh, so we also looked at the opposite of building is tearing down. And there's some things that tear down the church, and we want to avoid those things. And so if you're interested in what those things are, you can get the message from last week. But in the time I've been here as the pastor of Grace Bible Church, uh, probably several times I've been approached by other churches to get together for a what they call unity service. And it has the idea that ever, all the different churches will come together as one and kind of hold hands and sing kumbaya and, and have unity. And whenever I, I encountered that, I looked at that, I, I, it's just something within me said, that's not necessarily a good idea. And the common reaction to that was always, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, Jesus said that, that the world will know us by what? Not by our doctrinal agreement or disagreement, but what? By our love, by our unity. And so they would, they would kind of throw it out there and say, well, don't you want to you know, encourage the world to see the church as one? Um, shouldn't we set aside our differences, theology, whatever it might be, our beliefs, and bind together with all kinds of churches just so that we could all be viewed as united? You see on the back of cars today the little bumper sticker. What's it say? Coexist. It has all the different emblems of not only Christians, but religions. And they're saying, hey, we all need to come together. And they think somehow in their warped thinking that that is what Paul and others, Jesus, is talking about as far as Christian unity. And so the questions are this, how broadly, how narrowly should we draw the lines of Christian fellowship? That's what Paul is, is dealing with here. Um, you know, in the 1980s, it says that there was 21 thousand to 23,000 different Protestant denominations in the world. Today, it's more like 50,000 Protestant denominations. And so when you encounter people of the Catholic faith, they say, see you Protestants, you're, you know, you got it all wrong. I mean, look at, you got all 50,000 of these different people that believe different things. We have one church, the Catholic church. They don't tell you that there's 60 different Orthodox churches that broke off of the Catholic Church all the way back to the Great Schism in, in uh, 1054. And so the thinking is this, shouldn't we all set aside our differences and just come together under one big Christian unity umbrella? The, the problem with that is, okay, well, if we do that, whose umbrella will that be? The Catholic Church says it's theirs. Um, and also, you know, who's holding the umbrella is kind of the idea. Whose umbrella is it going to be? What is the essence of true Christian unity? That's what Paul was writing to the Romans about. Remember, this was right after the church began. And so you had Jewish people from one sect of society and Gentiles, pagans from another sect. And so they would come together as Christians under the same roof. And there was a lot of opportunity for divisiveness, for divisions and schisms. And they had those uh, throughout the New Testament. You look at the, the, the uh, book of, of Corinthians, when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, I mean, he talked about divisions among them, unhealthy divisions. And those divisions were always based on preference, not some doctrinal issue. That's not what they were talking about. And so there's, there's an important line to be drawn in the sand when you think of Christian unity. 
You know, does that mean we just throw out all of our doctrine and join hands with everybody? I don't think so. That's not what Jesus taught. He said, come out from among you, from among them, and, and be separate, be holy. Uh, you know, when I think of the church, I think of a bag of marbles. <laughs> and, you know, when you think of the church, you think of a bag of marbles. I do, because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We come from different cultures. Um, we come from different upbringings. We were raised differently by different people, some by parents, some by brothers, sisters, whatever it might be. Some have good upbringings, some have bad. We're from different countries as you look around the room. Um, we all have different giftedness. God has gifted us all differently. We have different passions. Some, some of you all talk to you about something, and man, you're just really fired up, and you talk to the same or another person about the same thing, and you know, they could care less. Okay? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how that works. Uh, one of my passions is airplanes. I like airplanes. I like aircraft, especially like military aircraft that goes real fast. All right? So all you have to do is just drop a little hint that you know someone who's a pilot or you went to an Air Force base. I'm in. I'm all in. It's like, tell me everything you experienced, okay? And I... Uh, I talked to my wife about those things, and she doesn't really care. What are you telling me this for? I don't really care. Who cares what the, how fast an F-18 can go or whatever? You know, I really don't care. You know, I'll watch Blue Angels videos and watch them. You know, isn't that amazing? It's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of neat, I guess, but whatever. Um, see, there's certain passions that we all have. But the church is kind of like a bag of marbles. When you go to the store and you buy a, 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 a set of marbles, they don't just throw them at you. They're in a bag, okay, kind of like that. All right, they're in one of those little, those little bags or even a, a little leather pouch or whatever it might be. Can you imagine what the store would be like if the marbles had no bag? You'd have marbles all over the place. And just from the kids playing with them, right? But they got to put them in a bag. They got to put them in a, in a container, something to hold them together, even though they all look different. Sometimes you can buy a bag of marbles. They're all different sizes. They're different colors. They're not different shapes because marbles are round. But that container, that bag, that netting, whatever it might be, is what keeps those marbles from causing chaos in the store. If you went into a toy store where the marbles were just rolling around on the floor, can you imagine the chaos that would be going on? If you've ever dropped a bag of marbles and they broke open and you try to pick them up and you try to step on it, you, know, you lose your balance. Why? It causes chaos. They can cause chaos in your home. That's why when the kids are done playing with the marbles or the Legos or whatever the toy is, you say, what? Put it back in its place. I don't want them all over the place. All those, those different colors, different sizes, they're all crunched together in some sort of container or bag that causes that chaos from ruining that store or your home. It brings order to what would be disorder. See, Christ is our container for the church. Christ is what keeps us in common unity, 
The commonality that we have is not from our backgrounds. It's not from our different colors or our cultures or anything else for that matter. But our common bound, our common bound is in Christ and Christ alone. That's the only thing that we all can say we have in common if we're Christians here today. Our bond of unity in Christ. That's what Jesus said over and over in John chapter 17, verse 11. The unity of his people was one of the desires that he expressed. He says, am I no longer, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, what? One. Even as we are one. That's what Christ's desire was for the church. In Corinthians, I, I mentioned about the, the factious Corinthian church. Um, they, were, they were very divided on things. And Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he goes on a little further down in that book in chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That was 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. He also reminds the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 28. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, even in the early church, they had a lot of discrepancy going on among the different classes of people, among the different sexes, male, female. And he said, no, don't look at it that way. We're all one in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul wrote this in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek nor Jew Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together, listen, in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether it's word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, because that's the common bond that we share, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So not only was Jesus interested in the unity of the church, Paul as well exhorted us to acknowledge the unity that we have in Christ. And apart from any kind of outright sin, 
Nothing shatters the fellowship, even the spiritual growth, you might say, the witness of a congregation, as much as disharmony among the members does. A lot of times, you know, Baptists bear the brunt of this. You know, I grew up after I got saved kind of in a Baptist environment. And I mentioned to somebody that I was a youth pastor at a Baptist church. And they said, ah, you're fighting Baptists. What are you talking about? Because I had no Protestant background. Oh, the Baptists are always fighting. They always fight. I thought, wow, that's weird. This guy doesn't even go to church. And that's what he thinks of Baptist churches. Now, it's not always true, clearly, but they must have done something to get that reputation. And it's not so much different for churches in general. And so what is true unity or what is oneness in Christ? Well, a couple things. True Christian unity comes, first of all, from God. And he says this in verse uh, chapter 15. Let me just read Verses 1 through 7 for us, and then we'll uh, kind of pick it apart a little bit. We are strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on him. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. You know, as we look at this idea of unity and harmony within the truth and within the church, it tells us clearly in verse five there that this is something that comes from God. Um, we're responsible to pursue, as we talked about last week, those things that build up and not tear down. That's what our responsibility is. Uh, and we have to be careful not to put stumbling blocks in each other's ways. And here, specifically in Romans 15, he's talking about weak brothers and strong brothers. Well, you know, a lot of times, uh, well, who were these people specifically? Well, given the situation, uh, when Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, the strong are those who have a proper understanding of who they are in Christ. In this case, it was probably the Gentiles. Because it was the Jews that got saved, and when they came into the church, they had a tendency to bring in all of this traditional stuff that they believed. And so when they saw, a, you know, a Gentile eating a pork chop, they went nuts, saying, well, you can't do that. No, 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 everything is good for us to eat now that we're in Christ. And, uh, but even some of the, the Gentiles who were saved out of a pagan background, um, they would maybe be invited over to somebody's house and be offered food that was uh, offered to an idol, and they would boy, if they were not mature in their faith, if they didn't have a proper understanding of who they were in Christ, they would, you know, go against that and say, oh, I can't eat that and possibly offend the person or whatever. And so they had these issues going on or what day to worship on were some of the practical things. Um, But how do you express true unity when you look at the body of Christ? Because we're all different. We all come from, like I said, different backgrounds. So true unity must be something that God produces in us. 
He produces it in us. True unity is not primarily organizational unity. The church went down that road. The church, I mean, in general, the the world church. You know, have you ever heard of the World Council of Churches? Uh, The National Council of Churches? Or even on an evangelical sense, you've heard of the National Association of Evangelicals? All those are people trying to give unity to the church by an organizational structure. And that's not what God says to do. And there's problems with every one of those. Probably the World Council of Churches is the most liberal out of those. But even the the National Association of Evangelicals, um, you know, for the most part, they're a lot more conservative. But now they begin to to include people who believe in things like soul sleep or annihilation. They don't believe in the eternal punishment of the soul. They'll include them in that evangelical mantle. And we would say, well, wait, that's not what the Bible teaches. But they're like, well, that's not that important when maybe it is. So it's not primarily organizational unity. Um, True unity is not primarily ethnic unity. A lot of times you see this going on. Now, if if language is an issue, which sometimes it can be here in the the Bay Area, especially, right? You have a maybe you have a Spanish church or, or an Indian church, whatever, they just speak Hindi or they speak Spanish. That's fine. But for the most part, a lot of times people just kind of like to flock with people of their own kind. And the church isn't supposed to be about that. Uh, You know, we're not called to discriminate on who comes to a church based on their ethnicity or their background. That should play no part in it. Also, true unity is not primarily cultural unity. Um, the church growth movement tried this years ago. Um, they came up with this idea of the, the homogeneous unit principle. They said, well, you know what? Most people like to be with people like themselves. And so it's kind of like if you go into some kind of uh, a toy store sometimes, the marbles are all boxed up and they're all the same color and the same, you know, the same size. And they're all, they all have their own distinct little uh, organizational thing. That's what they tried to do to the church. The church growth movement did. And that's where you get things like, you know, uh, when, when Rick Warren started Saddleback Church down in Orange County, he came up with a little um, kind of a uh, mascot called Saddleback Sam. And he said, this is what, this is the people. This is who we're trying to reach. And, and they defined it right down to the socioeconomic background that they had urban professionals, or, you know, you've heard of the Gen X or whatever, and you have certain churches, I, it's surprising, you go on the internet, or even on TV once in a while, if you're watching TV Sunday afternoons, I saw a thing called Cowboy Church. I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. What, what's that, just for cowboys? And it was. Okay, now, you know, we laugh at that, but it gets kind of crazy. They have biker church, they have bar church, for those that like to go to bars, they have churches that meet in bars. And, and this is kind of sick, but they even have churches that specifically are gathered together. Their one commonality is not Christ, but it's pornography. Now, they're not actively saying to go watch pornography, but their common bound is that they have a background at dealing with. And I'm thinking, why would you even? That's kind of crazy. But you know what? That's what our culture does. That's why you have things like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? Because you can get all these alcoholics together. I'm not saying it's a bad program. I'm not saying you can't be helped through that. But when you replace that for Christ, you got a problem. 
So you have all these people with these issues coming together because that's their common bond. And what the Bible says is, no, that's not, our unity is not a cultural unity. Our unity is based on Christ and Christ alone. And when they would do that, they would say, well, that helps with, you know, the worship. So then you don't have, you know, the old people wanting only hymns and the young people wanting some rock concert, you know. So if you have them all separate, then that solves the problem. Which practically it may. But it's not biblical. It's not biblical to do that. Um, Because the church is called to come together to be one. So true unity is not primarily cultural unity, but it's also, it's not primarily outward conformity. Over the years, some churches have said, you know what, it's all about what you wear. And I've given you the illustration when I went to a a conference one time and everybody was dressed the same and they had the same kind of glasses as the pastor. They talked like the pastor. It was a little scary. They were just all clones of the pastor. See, that's why it's, you know, now we want to dress appropriately when we come to church. We want to do the best that we have for the Lord. That doesn't mean a suit and tie. That may mean a, you know, a nice pair of slacks or whatever. You know, so, I mean, it has to be appropriate. But you don't want to fall into the trap of James 2 where you're actually excluding people who didn't wear a certain kind of clothing. Um, true unity is never a matter of outward conformity. Because true unity comes from God and God alone. And he's the one who gives the perseverance and the encouragement. That's what he says there. And it goes all the way back to uh, verse uh, 4 when he's talking about the word there in, in, in Romans fifteen four. And so we, we need encouragement from God since there will be many discouragements and many setbacks as we try to maintain this unity that we have in Christ. Um, and so us, for us to be of the same mind with one another, you have to grow in the fruit of the spirit. You have to understand who you are in Christ. You have to depend on God daily to allow him to live this life through you as Paul did. But what Paul points out here in, in chapter 15, and we're going to work through a couple of these spiritual characteristics that really lead us to, uh, help maintain this unity that we have in Christ. Remember, we don't make this unity. It's already there. If we're a believer, we have a common bond with everyone. And so there's seven things here that we want to go through. And the first one here is in verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. All right? We're trying to understand each other. We're called together to be one in Christ. And so he says here... The responsibility mainly falls on those who are strong, those who are more mature in their faith. Uh, when he, he gives a, the word there, he says, we who are strong have an obligation. Okay, that, that original language means, has the idea of owing a debt, having a strong obligation. We don't like that, but that's what it's really saying in the text uh, it's used in Hebrews chapter 4, that word, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3, to refer to the unique responsibility of the high priest in ancient Israel who was obligated, it says, to offer sacrifices for the sins as for the people and also for himself. 
It was his duty. It wasn't an optional thing. Um, in his first letter, 1 John, he uses this term three times to indicate our obligation to follow God's example. He uses it in, in chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 11. He says, then one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. It's not an option. You can't call yourself a Christian and walk like somebody else. You have to walk like a Christian. You have to walk like Christ. Um, It says, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. That's not an option. That's that's not. It's it's, it's something that's a, a debt that we're paying. It's, it's an obligation that we have. And then finally in chapter 4, verse 11 of 1 John, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Also not a, uh, it's, a, it's an obligatory thing that we have to do. It's not an optional thing. We're called to do that in the body of Christ. Well, what does he say we ought to do? He says we have an obligation to bear, in verse 1, the failings of the weak. That word has the idea of picking up and carrying a burden for somebody. Picking up and carrying someone's burden. In Mark chapter 14, verse 13, it was used of carrying a pitcher of water. In Acts chapter 21, verse 35, the same word was used of carrying a man. In Acts 15.10, it's figuratively used as bearing a yoke of obligation. So it has the idea to bear the weakness of those who are weaker. The strong have that obligation. We're not called to be condescending. We're not called to be judgmental. We're called to show respect to these weaker brothers and have some understanding and compassion in our hearts toward them. And so as you, you think of that, that really falls in line with, with what we're told even in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. When he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. I mean, that flies in the face of what we're taught out there in the world every day. It's all about me, my needs. Don't talk to me about your needs. He says, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The idea there is showing genuine, loving, and practical consideration for other believers within the church that you are joined to be one with. We're not to argue about minor issues or be critical of those who maybe have a little more sensitivity about some former religious practices or something like that. Paul says, don't worry about that. God will take care of that in the long run. You focus on being one with your brother and sister in Christ. The injunction here is for mature believers to voluntarily and lovingly refrain from exercising their liberty in Christ in ways that might offend those who are less mature in the faith. As believers, as more mature believers, we're called to be sensitive to that. You can't just say, well, grow up. You know, I don't care if, you know, that is what you did before you're a Christian. Don't you know you're a new, all things have become new, old things have passed away. Don't you understand who you are in Christ? We don't need to, you know, berate them. We need to encourage them 
to come to that understanding for themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 22, Paul is referring to himself here. He says, for though I am free from all, in other words, I can do whatever I want in Christ. I don't have to live up to these religious things anymore. I have made myself a servant, he says, to all, slave to all, that I might win more of them. And then he gives examples in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21 To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law. The law of Christ, he says, that I might win those outside the law. And then he says in verse 22 To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. God put a burden on Paul's heart to be used as an instrument of evangelism in his culture. And he couldn't just say, well, I'm just going to do it to the Jewish people because that's you know, my background and that's what I best understand. That's not what God had him do. He said, no, I want you to understand more than just your background. Now, he's not speaking here of compromising the gospel. He's not speaking of a unity service where we all, you know, join around and and hold hands and sing kumbaya. And it's irrespective of what people believe. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking even about godly standards of living. All right? Some people think that, you know, if they lower the standard within the church, somehow that's going to be appealing to worldly people. And so you have churches today that they don't preach a message anymore. They, they'll give a talk, and it's like 10 minutes. And it's not anything of any depth. And in place of everything else, they have a lot of music, maybe somebody up on stage painting, all these things, because they're trying to captivate people's hearts and minds. But they're doing it in such a way that they're really compromising the time they have with these people in their congregation with what's really going to affect them, and that's the Word of God. And somehow they've forgotten that. So he's, we're not talking about compromising the gospel. Uh, we're not talking about being men pleasers. That's what he asked the Galatians. He says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's what Paul asked himself in Galatians 1.10. Or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, on the contrary, he was speaking of relinquishing, of giving up his personal liberties, his personal advantages for the sake of fellow believers. Even for the sake of unbelievers. If doing so might be instrumental in leading them to Christ. And that's what we're called to do. You know, we don't, we don't go out into a world of lost people and say, well, if I'm going to talk to anybody about the gospel, they've got to come on my terms. You know, they, they have to like what I like, and they, they got to be willing to hear what I... No, you, you try to find a, common, a commonality with you and that unbeliever. Maybe it's baseball. Maybe it's football. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's race car drive. Whatever it is. You just pick up on it, and you're, oh, you're interested in that. And eventually, you, you have that common bond there, and then that kind of mushrooms out into other areas of life. And pretty soon, you're having an impact on an individual that you had nothing really in common with to begin with until you took a little time to dig down deeper and get to know them. 
So we have to bear the burden of the weak. That's what we're called to do. Well, secondly, he says not only that, but in verse 1 there, he says, and not to please ourselves. Well, wait a minute here now. We're getting to preaching now. You know, this is a little personal. We're not to please ourselves. Um, See, the right use of Christian liberty, which the strong believer understands and appreciates, involves what? Self-sacrifice. It's not going out and saying, oh, I have my right to do this, and I'm going to do it. I don't care who it affects or what it is. I know who I am in Christ, and I really don't care if it offends anybody else. They need to just grow up. That would be the wrong attitude to have. When our true motivation is to please Christ by helping to bear the weakness of those who are without strength or whose strength is failing, we can expect to forfeit certain legitimate liberties that we have in Christ. Because if we exercise those liberties, it might harm that weaker brother or sister in Christ. So we say, you know what, I'm just going to not do that. I'm not going to talk about that. The Lord designs, designs that a relationship with him be from the heart. And so graciously, he grants us freedom for our own sakes to liberate us from the shackles of religious um, superstitions that we were involved with before. They're no longer valid. But a new believer may come to Christ and, you know, I've had... Over the years, sometimes Catholic brother or sister come to Christ and they'll come to the church and they walk through the door and the first thing they do is they look for the holy water. (laughs) Where's the water? They got to do this. Why? It's just their upbringing. They're not being disrespectful. They they don't know. Matter of fact, they're almost offended that it's not back there. Or they kneel down when they cross the aisle because that's what you do in the Catholic church. You know, no, we can run up to them and say, what are you doing? We don't do that in this church. We can make a big stink about it, and they'd probably never come back. Or we could say, you know what, they'll, they'll figure it out. <laughs> see, that's the best way to, that's the best approach. And see, that's the true motivation that we should have, not just to please ourselves. Now, this is all apart from that which in itself is sinful. All right, we're not called to... Uh, compromise in areas of sin. So if we see a weak brother or sister coming to church and they're doing something sinful, then by all means, you call them aside in love and humility and you address the sinful issue with them. But when it's a matter of preference, then we have to kind of back off a little bit and let God do his work in their hearts. Um. The Lord does not grant those freedoms just so that we can please ourselves. That's really what Paul is saying. You don't have liberty in Christ for yourself. That's not the idea. The idea of having liberty in Christ is that it's going to benefit the whole church. So it doesn't turn into some legalistic center of religiosity. See, every believer in Christ has the same liberty in Christ as every other believer. But because as we grow, we're more sanctified, we grow in our spiritual understanding of who we are in Christ, we grow in our spiritual understanding of the word, we grow in our our spiritual maturity. Uh, You know, some people have different preferences. They have different views on different things. 
Probably the, the most common thing is if, if uh, you were to have a glass of wine or not. Someone who came out of an alcoholic background and a brand new Christian, they would be appalled to see a mature believer take a glass of wine and drink it. Well, the Bible doesn't really say anything. It says about getting drunk. It says certain things about that. I'm not condoning it. But on the other hand, you know, we have to be open and honest with what Scripture says. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul is grieved with the church because he heard that some of the members there in the Philippian church uh, were, were even in positions of leadership. And it says they sought after their own interests and not those of Christ. See, that's why you don't want to put someone who's immature in the position of leadership within the church eldership. Because it's not going to end well. Because they may not have the proper understanding and have gained the wisdom and, and understanding of, of growing mature in Christ. And, and, and they may still have some hang-ups that they're going to try to apply to everybody. And some people are going to find that very offensive, which they should. And for that reason, Paul declared that they had little genuine concern for the interests of Christ Jesus himself or for his church. And so it's really tied together, that idea of not pleasing ourselves with the idea that, you know what, we're more concerned with the church of Christ than we are about ourselves. So bear the burden of the weak. Don't please ourselves. And thirdly, look at what he says in verse 2. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I mean, obviously, the church of Rome also had some members. The apostle Paul appealed to them. And he said here, you know what? Be more concerned about your neighbor, your fellow believer. And he didn't exclude himself from this, by the way. He's not pointing his finger at everybody else saying, you need to do this. He's saying, we need to do this. Let each of us, he says. It's an all-inclusive responsibility. It doesn't allow any exemptions. It doesn't matter whether you're the pastor or whoever you are. You're not excluded from this. Even for this apostle Paul, he wasn't excluded from it. So the idea of pleasing our neighbor to promote his good and his building up or his edification usually requires some sacrifice on our part. It's kind of what he said back in chapter 14, verse 19. Remember this? He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual edification or mutual upbuilding. To do good for our neighbor is to promote his edification. Is to be of the same mind as our brothers and sisters in Christ, maintaining the same love United in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what he says in, in Philippians 2. Doing nothing from selfish, empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you have that kind of attitude in yourself? 
which is also in Christ Jesus. We should. That's what we're called to. Now, it doesn't come easy because we live in a sinful body. We live in a sinful world. We're bombarded with the mentality of it's me first, me first. So the idea that we're actually going to sacrifice for somebody else so that they could get ahead, that just runs contrary to everything that we've ever been taught. So what's the Christian principle here? The principle that Paul is stating here is found throughout the New Testament. This isn't the only place. And you know what? The unbeliever naturally always puts himself first. That's just what the unbeliever does. They put others second. And where is God? He's down. He's down on the list. Third, fourth, fifth, whatever. And he thinks somehow that he's Deserves this and he merits, you know, I'm going to look out for number one. And the Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches that the believer should have God first, others second, and guess who's last? Us. Us. Ourself. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. I already read the, the verse in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, I become a, all things to all men. In Romans twelve ten, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And here in, in, in verses 1 and 2, exactly what he says. See, this is the heart of Christian conduct. And the problem is, is when the church gets focused on themselves as individuals and not the corporate unity, that's where you have issues. And that's where the witness of the church is compromised. The ministry of the church is compromised. Followers of Jesus Christ are also to give themselves for others because Jesus gave himself for others. We'll get into that next week as far as following Christ's example. Jesus said that his own would feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, make welcome the one who is lonely. Look at that text in Matthew 25, just as we close out this morning. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. Now remember, this is not just some, this is, this is the Lord himself Speaking in verse 31, Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and will be separate people. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then look at what he says in verse 35 For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do this? When did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or stranger, naked, sick, or in prison and did not minister you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it, did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And when these will go away, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is not a joke. We're called as the body of Christ to follow his example. One of his examples, as we're going to find out next week, is that we are more concerned with others than ourselves. And none of us do that perfectly. It's a struggle. It's very much a struggle. But that's what he's called us to. And it's not impossible. See, we think, well, that's just impossible. No, it's not. We have the very spirit of God living within us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead. We have access to each and every moment of our our lives as Christians. And so everything that God has indicated that we should do, commands that he has committed to us to uh, live up to, he provides a way. If we're going to rely on our own flesh, then we got a problem. But as believers, the last time I checked, we have something more than just our own flesh. We have the very spirit of God living within us. We have the power of Christ. That's what makes this different. That's why when the church looks, the world looks at the church, it should go, whoa, what is this? Never seen this before. I mean, these people really care for each other. These people really love each other. I mean, you can tell it's, it's, it's not about just the food over in the fellowship hall uh, that people come here on Sunday morning for. That they really enjoy being with each other. That they enjoy the fellowship. They enjoy the conversation. They're concerned with each other. They're praying with each other. They're lifting each other up. They're coming along those who, who maybe aren't sitting with someone and, and sit down and get to know someone new for a change. See, that's, that's what is going to kind of just make the world step back and go, I don't know what's going on there, but there's something different. See, and the difference is Christ in us, the hope of glory. When we do that on a consistent basis, God will be honored. God will be blessed. His church will be edified. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we look forward to next week as we look at Christ as our example. And Lord, we, <laughs> this is not easy to do. I'll be the first to say that it's not easy to put others in front of yourself or in front of your own family even. Because we're taught the opposite. But, Lord, your word is so clear. And next week, we're going to look at some practical ways how this plays out in our lives. 
as we see in the life of Christ. But Father, we pray that even this week, even, even this morning as we leave here and, and have some fellowship over in the fellowship hall with some food, I pray that we would be sensitive to those around us. Maybe there's someone that needs a kind word or, or maybe we can sit with someone who, who we haven't sat with before. Get to know them. Um, Lord, that's what you call us to do. You don't call us to be comfortable. That's not why we're here. And yet, that's what our flesh yearns for. It's uncomfortable for us to go up to a stranger or to sit with someone we haven't sat with before or to, to get to know someone new. That's, that's it's just not our comfort zone. And yet, that's what you call us to do. And Father, we think of the agony and everything that Christ went through physically and spiritually on the cross. Are we really going to complain about being a little uncomfortable? Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts. We pray this. Pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. I pray, Lord, that they would understand that, that what we're about here is seeking your truth, understanding your truth. We want to teach your word because we know that it's the word of God that convicts the hearts of men and women to come to the Savior. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling that conviction, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would cry out, even in the quietness of this moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first step is acknowledging your sin before a holy God. The second step is acknowledging that God has an answer for your sin. That his son went to Calvary to pay that price. He gave up his own life. And the Bible says because of his sacrifice, you can be made clean. Your sins can be forgiven you. Because someone else has paid that debt that you could never pay yourself. And so, Father, we pray that this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that this morning would be the morning they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we ask these things. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.